1: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cattillo, of the Royal Historical Society. And I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Jill Bennett. Dr. Bennett was formerly Chief Historian at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and Senior Editor of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office's Official History of Post-War Foreign Policy documents on British policy overseas. She has also been a visiting fellow at Corpus Christi College at Cambridge and is currently a fellow at the Royal United Services Institute in London. And we are today speaking about her new book, The Zinoviev Letter, The Conspiracy That Never Dies. Uh, Welcome, Professor.
0: Thank you. Uh,
1: So, uh, Dr. Bennett, may I ask... um, Uh, what is the primary thesis of your book?
0: Well, the Zinoviev Letter Affair, which um, is one of those things that a lot of people have heard of, but um, not everybody knows what it is. So you may perhaps like me to give a little summary of it. Yes, by all Uh, means. uh, Just to begin, it it was a letter that was supposedly written by uh, Grigory Zinoviev, who was the head of the Bolshevik propaganda organization, the Comintern, to the British Communist Party in 1924, um, exhorting them to greater revolutionary effort. The significance of the letter, which was probably almost certainly forged, in fact, is that it arrived in Britain just at a very key time in the life of the first ever Labour government. And the letter was leaked to the press and used to damage the Labour Party during the general election campaign and became a subject of lasting resentment uh, to the Labour Party. And indeed, it became a subject of continued political relevance to the extent that it came, has come up in every decade since the 1920s. And indeed, its most recent mention in the press here in the UK was only a few weeks ago. And I, well, I've worked on this for a long time because it's one of those conspiracies which, as chief historian in the Foreign Office, I had to deal with on many occasions. But I was intrigued by the fact that such apparently ephemeral affair, uh, should have had such a long life, the conspiracy, literally, that never dies.
1: Now, um, the Zinoviev letter, when it, um, I suppose for lack of a better term describe it, emerged in uh, Whitehall uh, circa 9th or 10th of October 1924, this came at the tail end of the MacDonald government, and the McDonald government at the time was already embroiled in a scandal called the Campbell affair, uh, uh, relating to a um, member of the I member of the Communist Party who was uh, seen as endeavoring to uh, subvert loyalties of uh, the armed forces through uh, some type of propaganda. Uh, now, would it be correct to say that the Zinoviev letter? when it did emerge in Whitehall from appears um, uh, from the SIS um, station in Riga, um, would it be correct to say that it was an attempt by someone, uh, we're not quite sure who, of course, um, still, uh, to negatively influence in uh, the electoral prospects of the McDonald government?
0: Yes, I think one of the most interesting features of the whole affair is that the Zinoviev letter is regarded as a classic case of disinformation, which, of course, is a subject very contemporary in 2018, because although it was clearly intended to subvert um, UK politics, it may also have been intended to subvert uh, Soviet politics because we don't know exactly who wrote it, Who passed it on? Who leaked it? or who manipulated it 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 could be almost there's a number of different candidates and therefore you can't just say this is one side doing it to the other, there are lots of possibilities but the effect certainly, uh, you're right to mention the Campbell affair, this was really um, a a big mistake by Ramsay MacDonald the Labour Prime Minister who when this inflammatory article was published in the Workers Weekly, the author of it was briefly accused of treason and although the government withdrew the prosecution, it it was a move that outraged the the left in Britain. And so uh, the government had actually resigned um, on the 8th of October uh, over a vote of no confidence in the House of Commons and so the letter actually reached Whitehall just as the general election campaign was beginning. Um, and there were already stories circulating in london that some kind of document was going to damage labor
1: now when the letter first um was received in uh, whitehall specifically um sis and uh, headquarters as well as the foreign office would it be correct to say that both initially uh did not view the letter as being extraordinary or something that uh, required immediate attention?
0: That's certainly what they said then um, at the time and and later. The letter, in fact, the only, we have no original of the letter in the sense of any uh, any document that was definitely a letter. The only text that's available is the text that was contained in a telegram, as you said, from the special, uh, secret Inter- intelligence services uh, station in Riga sent through to SIS headquarters in London and from then in the normal way, as would happen with all those kinds of reports, it had its um, distinguishing marks taken away from it and then it was passed on to the Foreign Office and to various other Whitehall bodies. Um, The people who dealt with it within SIS headquarters and indeed in the Northern Department of the Foreign Office who dealt with Russia all said it was just like a lot of other documents they had received and they didn't at first think it was particularly important. But it it underlines the fact that the crucial point about the letter is the timing of it rather than content. Now, getting back
1: to the figure of Zinoviev himself... um you seem to imply that there was a possibility, or at least there's um, uh, there's no way of ruling it out, that this was um, um, a provocation directed at him uh, by in this case Stalin, or perhaps um, some people point the figure at Trotsky. Um, zinoviev at the time was member of what was called at the uh, then as the triumvirate or the troika. Um, in power as the leading figures in the uh, Russian Communist Party with the passing away earlier that year of Lenin. Lenin, of course, being physically incapacitated uh, since, I think, October 1922. Uh, the other members of the triumvirate were Stalin and uh, Lev Khamenev. Um How plausible do you think it is that this was an um, internal... Uh, Soviet effort by either, most likely Stalin, or to lesser extent Trotsky, who was in opposition to the triumvirate, um, to discredit Zinoviev?
0: I think it's a possibility. I wouldn't necessarily uh, think it's it's very plausible, but it's a possibility that it's impossible to rule out. That we know that by this time, in fact, as soon as Lenin died. Stalin began working quite hard to eliminate all um, all possible rivals to his own authority. And he was already seeking to undermine uh, Zinoviev, who was one of the original Bolsheviks who'd been in exile with Lenin. He'd come back to Russia on the famous sealed train with Lenin. Um, Zinoviev was was very much a revolutionary hothead, rather a, a great orator, uh, and he was he was the kind of firebrand. Um, Stalin already thought that he really didn't have much time for Znoviev, except as a useful kind of campaigner. So you cannot rule out the fact that the letter may have been created in some kind of intra-Bolshevik power struggle, but I wouldn't necessarily regard that as a prime possibility. It's just something you can't rule out.
1: Now, getting back to uh, Whitehall, um, could you explain to the audience um, who exactly was uh, Desmond Morton, an important figure uh, in perhaps in the dissemination of the letter uh, on the British side, and what was um, uh, his role in this affair? And similarly, can you uh, tell the audience about the figure of uh, uh, the future Sir Joseph Ball, um in a similar way,
0: Yes, these two are very much shadowy figures in the whole affair, and indeed in other intelligence matters at this time. Desmond Morton himself is a former artillery officer in the first world War, highly decorated, he had been um, one of uh, General Haig's aide-de-camp uh, and uh, but he was shot through the heart in 1917 and a bullet remained lodged very close to his heart and therefore he could not carry on in active service and he joined the secret intelligence service Um, in 1919. His role at the time of the Znoviev Letter Affair was, it was what was called head of production or prod in SIS terms. You have to remember that these agencies were extremely small at that time. His job was to coordinate the reports uh, coming in from overseas um, to analyse them and to send them out to whoever needed to see them. And, but he was very much uh, an intriguer in Whitehall, a role he later carried out with great uh, distinction, uh, working as Churchill's personal intelligence advisor during the Second World War. But at this point, he was liaising frequently with the sister service, the uh, MI5, the UK's domestic intelligence agency. And at this point, Joseph Ball, um, who later became a distinguished um, industrialist and a rather murky figure uh, with the Conservative Party, Joseph Ball was working for MI5. And Morton and Ball were concerned with looking at the messages that came in in regard to Bolshevik subversion and sabotage and their activities that might be happening within the UK uh, and to discuss what should be done about them. So they definitely had a lot to do with each other. The trouble is, of course... I mean, intelligence is, after all, a business that is shrouded in secrecy, and if they did have incriminating conversations or even exchanges of letter, um, they certainly would not have kept the records of those things, so you have to use um, a good deal of induction, this affair. But there's no doubt that Morton and Bohr are crucial figures in this story. And it is certainly possible that both of those people who had absolutely no sympathy for the Labour Party may well have seen an opportunity here to use this particular letter um, to cause some political mischief.
1: Now, um, once the letter on in Whitehall was taken um, at face value after the Foreign Office asked SIS to confirm the genuineness of the letter, uh, it was decided um, by the permanent undersecretary uh, State of the Foreign Office, Sir Air Pro, to um, launch an official protest uh, to the um, Soviet um, mission in uh, London. Now, at the time, uh, the Prime Minister, Rams MacDonald, who was also Foreign Secretary, um, was in campaigning uh, in Wales, it was not in London. So everything was done via um, telegram, I, I presume, uh, or correspondence. Um, he reviewed the official letter of protest, uh, but did not initial it. Uh, in and um, deciding on his own authority, the permanent undersecretary Crow decided to send the letter on as to the Russian, I'm sorry, Soviet mission, uh, regardless. Would the affair have turned out differently, or would the affair have had a different resonance subsequently, particularly in the historical memory of the Labour Party, if uh, Crow decided not to send the letter on on his own authority and waited for MacDonald to come back, and one presumes send the letter as opposed to uh, sitting on it?
0: Well, it's certainly true that Crow's decision... Um, was a, a key point, uh, and of course, it has been one of the chief points of controversy ever since. Crow argued, and uh, uh, indeed, that he had heard that the text of the Zinoviev letter, which, which by then had been leaked um, to the press, and he knew that the Daily Mail had a copy of it. He knew that the Daily Mail were going to publish that letter on the 25th of October. And so he regarded it as absolutely essential that the British note of protest should also be published. Otherwise, um, the the role of the Tory press who were saying, you know, this proves that Labour is in thrall to the Reds in Moscow would have no argument countering it. So that was Crowe's argument and it's, it's not an illogical one. But in Macdonald's terms, he said he had uh, amended the draft, he'd sent it back, and he was expecting to get a revised version of the draft back for him to review before he signed off on it. And it, it seems um, that is obviously what normally a minister would expect. And the really strange thing, I think, is that although maybe crow was right to take that decision you could see why he did but neither he nor anybody else in the foreign office thought fit to actually telephone macdonald and explain what they'd done so that macdonald was left out you know, campaigning in Wales being asked questions by reporters having not the faintest idea what was happening in London which seems an extraordinary situation for any set of officials to put their minister who was not only foreign secretary but prime minister as well in so I mean there are questions on all sides compounded by the fact that the annotated draft um disappeared at some point from the foreign office archives and has never been found so although we have some idea of what the draft was and we have some idea of, of what the amendments were because we know what the final copy looked like uh, there is obviously quite a lot of suspicion about the way that the whole thing was handled
1: now the upshot, the immediate upshot of um uh, the protest was that uh, labor lost heavily to the conservatives in the general election um, um, which uh, was in the late October of 1924 and most historians and you yourself indicate that you agree uh, posit that in point of fact the Znovi letter played very very little part in that electoral defeat there were other issues in particular the movement of uh, liberal voters from uh, the Liberal Party, which uh, before the election was um, third party um, and had approximately 154 seats in parliament, to um, bloodbath electoral speaking, I think they reduced to less than 50. And most of those voters ended up in the conservative um, camp. Um, What was the immediate reaction... Uh, first of uh, MacDonald and the cabinet, the Labour cabinet, to um, the letter. Uh, particularly, I think there was a something approaching an official investigation by the cabinet in terms of um, the affair, uh, which they had like a week or ten days to do before Parliament met. Um, and uh, what was the uh, initial um, investigation by the Conservative Party, led by Stanley Baldwin, once they came into power later on in November 1924?
0: Well, you're right to say that the letter did not lose the election for Labour, although there are to this day people, many people in the Labour Party who consider that it did. But Labour actually polled one million more votes in the le- election they lost than they had in the election they won. So they were always going to lose that election, although um, undoubtedly the coverage in the media damaged the vote. However, the real impact was humiliation and indignation on the part of uh, both the Labour government and indeed their supporters. The two investigations, there's the immediate investigation, which um, MacDonald's cabinet carried out immediately before it resigned. Uh, and indeed the investigation carried out by the incoming Baldwin government were really in a way very flawed because they all relied on the existing evidence from the Foreign Office and indeed supplied by SIS. And so, even though Macdonald himself was very much um, suspecting by this time that the whole thing was what he called a political trick, and it was a, the letter was a forgery. there was no evidence available which would actually prove that nothing publicly available and When the conservative government came in, they just really of course wanted to shut the whole affair down, so their investigation drew on. Similar witnesses and similar statements. And so not surprisingly, it drew the same conclusions. But if either side thought they were going to put an end to this, um, they were very wrong because um, in the especially in the Labour Party, there was great indignation and the feeling that they had been cheated Uh, and that the party had been humiliated in the poll. Uh, And indeed, there were other people uh, in the wider country who felt that something very fishy had been going on and that the whole truth of it had not been revealed, which, of course, is true. And of course, we still don't know the whole truth. So the impact of it all was really felt later on because it it wasn't shut down. In 1925, there were a series of other inquiries. The Labour Party itself instituted a further inquiry. The Trades Union Congress instituted an inquiry. um, And uh, there were a number of other inquiries. And indeed, there were inquiries in Russia as well. Because they were rather dissatisfied with what the whole affair of the letter had revealed about their own security and about the whole way that they were perceived, so it was a you know it didn't die uh, despite some pretty strong attempts to kill it off.
1: Now, um, before we get into the Frank scandal of 1928, which um, brought back to the front pages. Uh, the letter. Uh, could you tell the audience a little bit about um, the forgery industry, which had uh, emerged on the back of uh, White Russian emigration, uh, with um, centres, in particularly in Berlin, and a lesser extent in Riga.
0: Yes. Um, during the 1920s, there was a well, really a, a, a huge forgery industry. And a lot of the people responsible for these forgeries were people who had escaped from Bolshevik Russia and were working possibly for what were called white Russians, that is the kind of anti-Bolshevik Russians or um, emigres. um, People from other countries who were opposed to Russia, such as Poland, um, and, of course, the Baltic states. And there's a key figure here, um, an extraordinary man called Vladimir Orlov. Orlov had uh, managed to work for the Tsarist secret police, and he'd worked for the Bolshevik secret police, and then he started working. He left and he ran a forgery bureau in Berlin at the time that we're talking about, um, which produced... Uh, It was really a forgery factory with he had people working with him, of course, produced forged documents really for anybody who would pay for them. He was given uh, facilities and accommodation by the German intelligence services. He received money from Polish intelligence and from British and from French intelligence as well as being closely connected with both white and red Russian intelligence services, from which you can tell finding out what Orlov did or didn't do is really impossible. He was um, an extraordinary figure. And while I don't believe that Orlov himself forged the Zinoviev letter, I'm pretty sure that he knew who did, and he may well have played a part in ensuring that it was um, disseminated more widely. But there were forgery factories um, in Berlin, in Paris, in Warsaw, And as you say, in Riga as well. Uh, And they were staffed really by disaffected, quite often former military people from the uh, the Tsarist uh, military forces or or people who just like raising hell and causing trouble, basically. So it was an extraordinary industry. Uh, and one that the intelligence services in France and in Britain um, kept a great deal of material on. They spent a lot of time analysing it.
1: Now, of course, it's also the case that um, these uh, uh, forgery industries, like a lot of other institutions of uh, Belaguard or White Guard in emigration, was most likely penetrated extensively by uh, Soviet intelligence. Is that correct?
0: yes it is and indeed the fact that um that orlov was working both for um the bolsheviks and for the white russians indicates that that is a certainty but we also know um from uh, evidence that uh, that they did penetrate some of these indeed sometimes the uh, the the bolsheviks actually established these organizations set them up as if they were um white russian organizations uh, so that and they obviously that they set them up they would all penetrated before they even got going and that it was that kind of system which led for example uh, to the death of the uh, rather notorious spy sidney riley who was lured um, across the border into russia by uh, one of these organizations and then executed. And uh, Boris Savankov, another uh, notable figure in this, happened same thing. So it was, yes, um, it, you cannot draw a line at this period between uh, Bolshevik, white Russian, and indeed some other intelligence. So it's very difficult to know what was actually going on.
1: Now, how far um, was SIS aware of the fact that a lot of these institutions were penetrated? You do say in the book that I believe 1923 or 1924 um, that SIS stopped regarding Orlov's products, for lack of a better expression, as being the genuine article. Mm-mm.
0: Yes, they, they they had come. I mean, they always thought Oralov was a rogue, which indeed he was. But he was also a useful rogue. Um, but after a while, because he would never say where he would got his material from, and they began to suspect that he was just recycling uh, material that um, he'd got from elsewhere, they stopped paying him, although there were still contacts. Um there are, there's a lot of material in the SIS archives about all these activities of course um, and this is not uh, I'm sure there are lots of other countries who have the same view they always thought that they couldn't be fooled really um in SIS they thought we know we know how all this works we know who's involved we know the details therefore if we come across forgeries we recognize them for what they are well clearly that was um over-optimistic, it was a complacent view, because clearly they were played on other occasions as well. So it really, I think it would have been beyond the capability of any intelligence organization to actually get to the bottom of all this.
1: Now, can you tell us a little bit about the Franks scandal of 1928, which engulfed and ended the career of, by that point, the assistant undersecretary at the Foreign Office, Gregory, who um, back in 1924 was head of the Northern Department of the Foreign Office, the department which covered the uh, Soviet Union, and who in fact signed the official letter of protest, which was sent to the Soviet mission.
0: Yes. Well, the Frank scandal, as it was called, is is the most bizarre episode in some ways in the whole story, because... You, If you look at it all, you have to believe that it's got something to do with an obvious letter, but it's almost impossible to see exactly what. The basic story is that Gregory was involved with a, a very exotic lady called Aminta Bradley Dime. Um Everybody assumed that they were lovers, but it was not uncomplicated their relationship because he was good friends with her husband and used to go on holiday with the family, including a son who some people think was Gregory's son. However, um, the, the main point of the scandal is that Gregory and Aminta Um, had a little line going speculating in foreign currency. They bought it and then they sold it before they had to pay for it, which, of course, is, is one of those things that people do, but hardly proper for the head of a foreign office department. But they were spectacularly unsuccessful. They lost money hand over fist. And um, by the reason that it all erupted in 1928 was because the fact that Aminta owed, um, in fact, the equivalent of about two million pounds to the stockbrokers who sued her. And the whole thing came out in court. However, at the end of 1924, Uh, a maid employed in the house of Aminta Bradley Dime made a deposition saying that she had overheard conversations in the house between Gregory Aminta and a mysterious, supposedly Russian, uh, uh, beginning with V, uh, talking about how the Zinoviev letter affair was all stitched up and that it was done to do down uh, the Labour government and that uh, Aminta and and uh, Gregory were going to uh, make a killing. Now, they certainly didn't make a killing. They uh, And it, indeed, it's almost impossible to discover how they could have done. When, in 1928, the whole thing came out during Aminta's bankruptcy proceedings and, and a court case, um, a number of uh, city experts were were brought on as witnesses to try and discover how precisely Gregory and Amenta might have made money out of the letter. But they couldn't because it really, after all, Gregory didn't know um, what the result um, uh, of the letter being published was going to be. I mean, he did, financially, it might have sent the markets up, it might have sent them down, that was the view. And in any case, uh, He could have, he didn't sell the letter, he didn't make money out of it, and it wasn't actually in his gift uh, when it should actually be published. So, uh, although there were lots of rumours going round, and MacDonald himself was very, very upset about this when he found out about it, he felt betrayed uh, by Gregory. But nevertheless, nobody then or since has ever been actually able to prove what it was that Gregory and Aminta thought they were doing, and they certainly didn't make any money. They lost money, and indeed, Gregory was dismissed from the Foreign Office when it all came out. Some other members of the department who had also been involved in the currency speculation were were also disciplined, and so it is an extraordinary affair, but also very frustrating because one feels it must be connected. But it's impossible to find that exactly how.
1: Now, back in, um, in 1929, um, in May, June of 1929, MacDonald uh, Labour Party comes back into government. And um, for whatever reason, uh, he decides, or the cabinet decides, not to pursue further the issue of uh, the genuineness, or lack thereof, of the Zinoviev Affair which is also true of the Attlee government between 1945 and 1951. Why do you think that um, uh, both occasions uh, the affair was not investigated, even the case and particularly of uh, the Attlee government, which had a huge majority in the House of Commons? It could very easily have done so and um, presumably uh, clean dirty, any dirty laundry that they might have found.
0: Well, I think there are two answers to that. One is that the Attlee government really had too much to do uh, to be involved in, in investigations at that time. They had a massive task, I mean, with their huge domestic legislation programme, plus um, a very difficult foreign affairs agenda. Uh, and, of course, they were trying to work out unsuccessfully, really, um, what, what could be a productive relationship immediately in the post-war period with the Soviet Union. I think the other thing is that there's, um, Apley would have said, um, you don't, you let sleeping dogs lie. I'm quite sure he would have said that. It's the kind of thing that it came up in time after time in election campaigns um, as an example of dirty tricks. But, I don't think that they had either the time or really the appetite for digging further into something that um, was a sore spot even then in the Labour Party. It was only really in the 1960s, after the the big spy scandals um, related to what's known as the Cambridge Five, and of course particularly the defection of Kim Philby, that uh, British intelligence organisations began to think they really wanted to resurrect this novice affair and look at it a bit more closely.
1: Now, what was the official reason given for the investigation into the affair uh, by Mrs. Uh, Baggett, um, in 1968, 1969, she used to be a high functionary at MI5.
0: Yes, well, it was the cabinet secretary at a small meeting who they discussed. I mean, what happened really was that, of course, Kim Philby, uh, despite being unsuspicion during the 1950s, um, uh, had been technically exonerated. And indeed, um, until his act, although he left SIS, he was still in close contact with the intelligence world. And it, then his defection, his actual flight to from Beirut to Moscow in 1963 was a huge shock um, to the intelligence establishment, in, in particular to SIS, who had maintained all along that he he was not a traitor. When that happened, Everyone was very shaken and they they said, look, if this could have happened and we didn't know about it, what else might there be in, in our past which actually had more to it than we thought? Are there any other skeletons there that we need to examine? And they set up a joint um, working committee um, between MI5 and, and SIS or MI6 to look at these. And they one of the things they thought it would be worth examining because there had always been rumours that the Zinoviev letter had been, um, if not forged, then certainly um, manipulated uh, by the intelligence services at the time. Uh, They decided to look into it thoroughly. Now, Millicent Bagot was just retiring from MI5. She was a Sovietologist. She seemed like the right person to do it, and so it was agreed she would um, look at the whole affair, root and branch, from the beginning with full access to the records of all the intelligence agencies. Um, but it was connected with Philby, um, and that that's what led to it.
1: What was the upshot of her investigation? I believe one of them, which was for the first time, it was officially admitted that the letter was not genuine. Is that correct?
0: Yes. I mean, she concluded at her researches um, that it was almost certainly a forgery, but that she could not Say definitively, who had forged it, of course, doing it in the sixties, there were still people around um who had actually been involved in the affair at the time, and where they were still alive and available, she interviewed a number of people, well, of course, um you know people who work in intelligence are very good at um, uh, telling you what. Uh, what they want you to believe. I mean, that's part of the whole task. And so her her interview with Desmond Morton, for example, told her absolutely nothing except that she uh, didn't believe what he told her, but there was no way of proving it. But she did Apart from actually looking in the intelligence archives, she also unearthed all the contemporary press coverage. She looked at reports that had come in at the time in the twenties from all over the world. Anything that might give a clue to build up a picture of the uh, of the affair and to see what it told it. Say her conclusion was it was almost certainly a forgery, but she could not be sure who had forged it. And in respect of what had happened to it she concluded that there was any number of people who might have leaked it for political reasons. but And some of those people may have been employed in British intelligence. But she ruled out the idea of an institutional conspiracy as really just being not practical. And I have to say in my own researches, I mean, firstly, in the 90s, when I was asked to do a similar investigation on behalf of the then Labour government, Uh, my conclusions were were very similar to her. I was able to find some extra information, but I couldn't, uh, again, and I still can't say definitively who forged it or who wrote it, Um, but obviously every time you do these things, you find out a little bit more.
1: Now, before we get into why you were asked by the then Foreign Secretary Robin Cook in 1998 to uh, reinvestigate this matter. Uh, one of the incidental aspects of the book which you discuss, en passant, is uh, Harold, um, the prime minister in the mid-60s, 64 to 70, and then subsequently from 74 to 76, Harold Wilson. Uh, he was an individual who, as prime minister, was, uh, for lack of a better expression, somewhat paranoid about conspiracies, by the intelligence services, uh, British intelligence services aimed at him. Uh, could I ask you, um, was there any validity to his fears other than the alleged plotting of the equally paranoid Cecil Harmworth King?
0: Well, I mean, it, it has been shown now, um, uh, conclusively, really, in the official his- history of mi5 done by uh, written by professor Chris Andrew that actually obviously there was a file um, uh, related to Harold Wilson held by mi5 but it, there was absolutely no um, uh, major investigation into him uh, and um, it, you know a lot of his fears were illusory and certainly later on in, in his second period of office uh, from 197074 uh, onwards as he became became increasingly paranoid about it. Uh, His fears became, if you like, wilder. It's it's not only that, of course. I mean, if you read some of the inside accounts written by uh, press secretaries in, in the Wilson government and so on, um, there are, there is an intense paranoia among a number of ministers about um, feeling that they are politically being targeted and that there may be uh, plots by, um, as you say, media or um, industrial. Now, the the extent of these is it is always exaggerated i think um but it meant that certainly in the early government, 64 to 70, although as always, Wilson worked perfectly harmoniously with his intelligence services as prime minister, but there was always the suspicion, which has always been true historically with Labour governments, um, that what some members of the party consider to be the establishment, you know, civil service, intelligence agencies and so on, the military, are, are out act, act to get them. But if you're asking me, was there any kind of um, intelligence conspiracy against Wilson, then there was not.
1: Yes, that, that was exactly my question. Now, when the then Foreign Secretary Robin Cook in the new Labour government, the Labour government which comes to power in May 1997 uh, under Tony Blair, um, he asked you um, in 1998, to launch another investigation into the Zinoviev affair. What was the background to that um, uh, request?
0: Well, the background was the publication of a new book um, called The Crown Jewels. And this was a book um, written jointly um, by Nigel West, which is the, um, the authorial name of uh, a former Tory MP, uh, Rupert Allison, and a former KGB colonel called Alex Alyov, um, And it purported to be based on material which um, Kim Philby and other, um, other traitors, you say, had taken to Moscow. And it had in it a chapter on the Zinoviev letter. This book was published early in 1998, and it caused quite a stir. In particular there were quite a lot of um questions in Parliament on the lines of why do we have to read about our history from material um which is given to foreigners by traitors? Why why can't we find it in our own archives. And of course, particularly, there was a lot of interest in the Labour Party, where the idea of Zonovia letter it still remained. Um, the idea of an anti-Labour conspiracy, it still had some resonance. And although initially, Robin Cook couldn't really believe that something 75 years old could could still seemed so important to some people, he became convinced that it was indeed important. And so um, it, he uh, ordered that there should be an investigation carried out by the Foreign Office historians um, with ac- privileged access to the records of the intelligence community in order to to try and get to the bottom of this, and to publish um, a report that would then be laid in the House of Commons Library, which is how these things are done, and so that um, was how I came to be doing it, and and also to go to Moscow and to go to Washington um, on my searches for. Uh, getting to the, you know, trying to get into the story again, and obviously I based it closely on the work of Miss Baggett, who had done so much of the preliminary researches um, with the access to you know things like um, newspaper reports and so on from the 1920s. So it, it it led to the publication of a report in February 1999 um, by the Foreign Office. Um, uh, setting out my conclusions, which, as I've just said, were largely speaking the same as hers. I'm almost sure I'm, it's forged, can't exactly say um uh, who forged it. But in my report, unlike, of course, her report was never published. My report um was, and it was able to contain a lot of information about the workings of the intelligence agency in the 1920s, which had never been um, fully revealed before.
1: Yes, the intelligence agencies um, by the mid-1990s all coming under statute. Previously, uh, of course, de jure, they did not exist.
0: That's right, and so you couldn't um, uh, you couldn't have talked about what they were doing because you couldn't uh, officially avow their existence. By the time I was writing my report, uh, that that was no longer the case, and so it was uh, it, it made it even more sensational, if you like, to be able to write about this and explain um, the involvement of the agencies in the affair. Because one of the interesting parts about this is that prior to the publication of our report in 1999, there had always been an accusation, especially in labor circles, that it was MI5 who had, as they would put it, done the dirty on labor. Whereas, in fact, if any of the agencies is closely involved, it is SIS rather than MI5.
1: Looking at the question today, who do you believe Bolshevik, the Guardia, White Guard, or... Um, someone in the UK was responsible for the forged document and for what purpose exactly?
0: I think that the most likely forger uh, is a, a, a former Tsarist officer called Ivan Pokrovsky um, and I think he uh, forged it in Riga Um Probably with the knowledge and maybe even advice from Orloff, impossible to say. I think he certainly um, worked closely with people involved with SIS in Riga. The role of the Riga station is certainly an equivocal one. Whether, how much of that was known in London headquarters is impossible, impossible to tell from the documentation. Now, I think the important thing about the Znoviableta remains not what was in it, but what was done with it when it was um, leaked uh, and and passed around because it was then definitely used for political purposes to damage the labor party whether that's its original intention or whether any part of the original intention may have been to damage the soviet union that the, the bolshevik reputation i, I mean I have no idea, but certainly, in terms of its continuing political importance in british politics uh, it was because it was used as part of a political dirty tricks campaign um, to damage labour that it has reta- it, it has remained um, of such um, continuing political interest i mean for example uh it's not only labour people who talk about this Znovia letter uh, in 2017 when there was a general election in the uk uh, and there were some reports in the press about what uh, members of the european commission may have said about what was going on <laughs> excuse me in in the campaign um there were reports in the newspapers in the UK saying that um, these kind of things were just a sort of interference just like with well, the obvious letter affair of 1924 of course it is one of those things that people tend to just refer to it without necessarily quite knowing what what they mean um but it, it's kept it alive through all these years the idea that it represents a kind of political skullduggery um which can always happen at any time, and that you've got to be vigilant against it.
1: (coughs) Can you tell the audience what are exactly the official duties of um, the official historian of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office?
0: Yes, the... um the Foreign Commonwealth Office is the only major department of state today that still employs a cadre of professional historians within it, um, and rather like the State Department, has a, a much larger um, historical unit. Um, but it has two main two main uh, functions. The first is to um, produce the official history. Documentary history of British foreign policy by publishing um, the volumes of documents on British policy overseas, but the second is this nebulous function which is called historical advice to ministers and senior officials, and that can be almost anything. It can be a very small. Um, uh, you just asked, get asked for a, to provide a a little story or even a joke uh, when a minister might be making a speech, but it could also be a major piece of research. And of course, over the years, there are enduring controversies that come back again and again. There's an obvious letter being one of them, um, which can involve the historians in really big pieces of work. And of course, as official historians, um, they have access to um, information that is not available to ordinary researchers and so um, it is their job to look into these controversies and try as best as possible um, to tell the truth about them and and to try and debunk the more extreme conspiracy theories but a good conspiracy theory never dies
1: If you wanted your readers to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: (sighs) I think that in an age of supposedly fake news, different disinformation, and sometimes they call it post-truth, uh, this, there is nothing new about this kind of information warfare. And that even in the digital age, you can learn a lot from looking back to the impact of such operations in the past.
1: Dr. Bennett, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak to us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thank you for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Bennett.
0: Thank you very much.